anyway, I'm going to get started uh, on, on the topic. If you guys remember, uh, we had um, a panel a few weeks ago, and uh, Dan, Becky, you're on, online. Dan was there, and Dave Doherty was on it, and Vicky was on it. And I believe it was Jen that brought the first question about uh, after everything that we've been looking at and everything I've been teaching, uh, how, do we, how do we share the gospel? So we're going to take our first stab tonight at that discussion. And I really encourage you guys big time to, uh, to contribute because uh, it's not a complicated uh, beginning. I just want to kind of break it down. I feel like I got a little bit of guidance from the Lord. But I'd like to pray and uh, just thank God for the season. Thank God for tonight. Thank God for you guys and for him and his presence in our lives and uh, see where the evening takes us. So, Father, it is an extraordinary privilege to be called your children. It is an extraordinary privilege to know that before the foundation of the world, literally, before any of the material creation was laid, that you conceived of us as your children and you thought of yourself as our Father. In that place, whatever that primordial place is like, whatever that place before the foundation of the world is like, you looked into the eyes of your Son, the Word, the Logos, the one that became incarnate and we know and you honor as Jesus. You looked into the eyes of your Son and you said, let's make them like us. Let's make them to enjoy our life to share in our communion, to share in our love, to be beneficiaries of it and to be givers of it. And so, Lord, we thank you that tonight, here in this room and on Zoom, connected together from various points around the country and around the world, that we together share in the life of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And Lord, we... uh, We don't focus on that, I don't think, enough because we're constantly tempted to think that what happens in our life revolves around what we do and mostly what we can lay out as far as our energy and the way we walk and the things we say and the things we do. But recently, Lord, I've been reminded that our lives are connected to others in a very dramatic and powerful way. So... Help us to see that tonight and help us to honor you and one another in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. I don't know if we're going to stick with this title because it sounds like I have a formula I want to share with you. Uh, Really what I'm talking about is too rowdy for you back there? Okay. (laughs) What I want to talk to you about is is the the story. And, and, And I don't want to overly focus on one aspect of of it. Uh, so there's something that I think we need to look at, which is the story that we're trying to tell when we share the gospel. What is that story? And, and then another thing that I w- would like to think about is, is what are the words that we use? And who are the subjects of those stories? And who are the subjects of those words? And uh, so I'm kind of I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I desperately need you to chime in. So... And, and so this is one of those where you guys can chime in pretty much any time. I've only got like four slides, and so um, 
just for, well, they got, there's an intro and a second intro and a, and a close, and then there's two things, so I guess there'd be five. Anyway, so here's a little, little scripture we can just jump off of, and uh, it's in First Peter, obviously, 3.15 there. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And there's a larger context to this scripture, but I love the idea that the words that we speak about relative to the gospel ought to be expressions of the hope that is in us. And so that's one of the first guiding principles I think we can just kind of make a note of, that when we talk about the good news, the good news is us talking about a hope that is in our heart. And sometimes when the gospel presentation is reduced to like a sales pitch for repentance or Christian living or something along those lines, it doesn't seem like it's focused on hope. And so that's just something I I thought would be an interesting place to start. So, pardon me? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and, and so, should that characteristic, should we expect to be able to communicate the gospel in gentleness and, and, uh, and uh, what was the other word? Reverence, thanks. Uh, yes, yes, because it's not like it's a do or die half court shot for the, the whole game. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that that's the best way to think about it. Uh, I know one of the, the phrases that never crossed my mind except just to think that I never think it anymore. Uh, about that sense of urgency and pressure to share the gospel is, uh, you know, what if you get hit by a bus on the way home? I, I mean, we really used to have that as a part of our communication about the gospel. And, uh, yeah, and then that's a, a gentler, slightly version of that. Uh, if you choke on one of those things you're eating, are you going to be okay? Are, are we going to have to try to revive you extra hard because you may not know where you're going? Anyway, I'm not saying there isn't a, a, a sense of urgency in, in having our lives right with God. But um, yeah, gentleness and reverence, that's awesome. So I think better questions uh, create better language. And does our gospel story reflect the glory and the hope of God's gospel? And that's another thing that, that troubled me a little bit. And so I was trying to kind of analyze root questions about stuff like this. So we'll get to the questions. So here's, here's uh, what I call some questions behind gospel version number one. I'm open to discussion about these. I'm open to criticism about them. I'm open to saying, yeah, that one applies. That doesn't seem to apply. So um, here's, the, here's the mic. And you guys are super welcome for it. And you like to follow that, Riley. So... I kind of tried to characterize these by thinking, okay, how would I break down the gospel that, that I'm personally stepping away from? How would I break that down into uh, a series of questions of which it answers? So the first one I came up with was, what are you, meaning us? What are, what are we? Okay. And then, what is God? Now let's deal with those two first, and then I want to show you this next slide, because I have two similar questions for a gospel that I feel is more accurate, 
And it's not, what are you? It's, who am I? Speaking first person from God. And then the next question is where we come in. Who are you? And so I'll go back. And, and I, I'm, like I say, I'm wide open for any kind of input. What are you? And so if I were to be just simplistic about it, I would say most of the, uh, most of the gospel versions and, and gospel patterns that I've, I've lived in in my life and talked about, the reason that I said what instead of who is because I, I, don't, I don't think of very many gospel occasions where who we were was the issue. It was what we were. That we were a sinner. Or that we were lost. Or that we were depraved. None of those are who questions. Those are all what questions. They speak about your status. They speak about the nature of your life. Um, uh, and then, sadly, what is God? Not who is God. Well, God is holy. Or God lives in unapproachable light and glory. Or God is, uh, I mean, rarely, rarely, was the issue God being Father. Mostly it was being holy. And so that is also an attribute of personality, not an, not an essence of being. So if, if that's true, these two questions sort of create a focal point where we start. And this story is about what we are and perhaps what's wrong with us. And you concentrate a lot on what's wrong with us well before you get to who you are, or the good stuff about you. you know, so it's not, I mean, this, this form of the gospel rarely uh, causes us to say, when we're coming up, do you know that you're a child of God? Do you know that you're a son of God? Matter of fact, it's even confusing as to whether that's an accurate thing to say in the context of these questions. Whereas this one, I like it because, and this was a little bit about what... Uh, um, we talked about when we talked about the gospel having a different focus than, than perhaps we think. The gospel is first and foremost about who God is, what he's doing, what's on his heart, what was his intentions during creation. So that's why I put this one first in this. Who am I? And I don't know whether this is, again, this is not going to be a simple little one-on-one -on -one equation where, oh, now I, I walk away with a new thing. But if the, if the beginning of the conversation to share the gospel begins with the question, from God's perspective, who am I or who is God? That, I think, has the potential to start a whole different point of reference to begin the discussion. And then, who are you, person? Who am I? Begins to, to come back. Okay, now, you guys are looking like, uh, like I, I, I'm making you stare off in, in space, looking for a looking for a black hole or some such thing. So, as I mentioned earlier, it was naive to think that what Laurel did is going to go unnoticed when she's not doing it. <laughs> and it's okay. I, I appreciate the patience of you guys and parents. It's going good for them. Um, so, on this idea of those first two questions, uh, who am I and who are you, 
versus what are you and what is God? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Is it too esoteric? Or Ronnie will have a thought. It's not so much the thought on those, but it's uh, you got gospel version one and gospel version two. Uh-huh. Um, maybe if we called it gospel version old and gospel version new, even though they really might not be new, that's new to us, would help distinguish. It could. You know, the reason I didn't two. do that, I thought about that. The reason I didn't do it this first time was because I didn't want to have the, the title totally bias the thing. I mean... I, it, no, no, I mean, it was like me rendering a judgment before the, we had the discussion. And if somebody could make a case that some of these questions in, in one are probably better, like what is required of us or something, that might be a good question, I don't know. Anyway, yes, Jim. Just bef before I saw your second slide and I saw the what are you and what is God, I was like, that just seems so weird to even ask it that way. Uh, because it was so depersonalized, and I thought that mm -hmm. isn't even a very accurate way to address that as a question. And then you brought up the second one with the who, which made it much more personal. So do you think that this is an unfair characterization of the other No, I'm not saying it's unfair. Ah. I'm just saying when I first saw that and you didn't have the other slide up yet, I was kind of taken back by it because it seemed so... Impersonal. The what are you and the what is God. Yeah, but I'm just saying that yeah. was actually a good distinction because I noticed how that affected me when I first read it. Mm -hmm. It didn't really... Uh, I know, it's Christmas. It didn't resonate Christmas in terms colors. of what's true. So yeah. I, appreciate, I appreciate that you differentiated okay. well, that's, that. That's, I mean, that's so good. it's a good start. There's more to come, but that's just how it hit Yeah, me. okay. All right. That, well, that, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. And I don't, I don't uh, disagree, Ronnie, that, that we could have already put that in there. Ezekiel, sir. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, um, like on the second question, what is God? Would you say there would, or like, what would you say the difference would be between someone that would identify characteristics of God and another person that would answer a more like philosophical or like existential like some people would say, like the universe or the spirit, like it, like okay, uh -huh. people would have like a more existential or like fundamental answer, and other people would be like God is loving or kind or a father or something like that. Okay, so so let me let me see if I understand the question, and then we can get some thoughts about it. Uh, are you? Uh, um, I would guess it's legitimate to ask either question. Uh, to ask what is God? Um, matter of fact, I'm reading a book right now by uh, David Bentley Hart called Experiencing God, and, and it's a what is God book, you know, and he's a, a, a Christian believer and theist. But, yeah, the, dis, the, the attributes, of course, that depends too. Uh, like if we're talking attributes of being omnipotent, all-powerful, or everywhere present, those can be kind of, less personal than being loving or good or kind. Um, but even, even if we just talk about love or goodness or kindness, I almost think that the who thought behind the question allows us to attach it to something or someone 
that we can relate to like a father or like a, like a friend. Um, and so I, I do think when you ask the question, what are, or, you know, what is God, that you're not really drawing a person into the direction that you want the relationship possibility to go because you want there to be, uh, if, if, if their view is very impersonal, then you've got to deal with that. And I, I think one of the ways we deal with it is, is we go ahead and unfortunately we kind of concede that the big question about God is a what question. And then we, we talk about him being a judge or being holy or being something like that. And you're not holy, so now this is where the conflict begins. And the other thing that does is it sows a conflict in to the gospel that we talk about between us and God. And I'm not sure that's the best place to place the conflict. I'd like to think that the conflict is more between us and our perception and our sin and various things like that. I'm not saying there's not two sides to the question, but uh, yeah, so maybe that's another reason why I thought a more obsolete way of doing this, a, a more inaccurate way of doing it, was leaving the option of God being a what rather than a who. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, great question. Dave. So as I was looking at that question, I thought about my mom, whose initials are WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction. <laughs> Those are her initials. She that had, explains something she, of your childhood. Yeah, she had seven children, so sometimes she had to be. But nobody ever asked, when they saw my mom, they never asked, what is that? They always asked, who is that? Yeah. And I... Uh, and that's what we do with people around us. We don't ask what, we ask who. And it's so much easier to... And we joke about my mom all the time, WMD and you know some of the stuff that she did. So there is the what aspect of her, but the more personal aspect is what. And I think that, like you said, makes God more identifi- personal, makes God more... Daddy makes... It, it makes daddy more personal, mm-hmm. more easier to explain. Yeah. Yeah, and again, go ahead, Ronnie. Uh, the goal, the goal is to just analyze a little bit what are we sowing into our talk about the story of the gospel, and what what does that talk presume? Does it presume that we are moving, or, or we're offering, or receiving a possibility for a relationship with a person, or that we are going to align ourselves with a position, or align ourselves with something like that? Yes. So it appears that we're also comparing an a different. One way of sharing the gospel with another way of sharing the gospel. Prompted by Jen's question of what do we say now? Mm -hmm. And part of the original version one that I had been taught was it's good to let help the people know they're lost. Because that that was one of the things is they don't even know they're lost, right? Before they can be found. And so I think the second version of it might be What's your relationship with God like, and would you like it to be different? Right, right, right. As so, would so, you would you cast would you say that that uh, lostness is an answer to what are you? Yeah. yeah well, I mean, one of that was one of the big deals that was told to me is they don't even know the yeah. problem they got. Yeah. So you can't just help them fix their problem if they don't even know they have it. That was the concept. 
But I think it's pretty easy for people to quickly and easily say, yeah, my relationship with God is, uh, it isn't. Yeah. Well, and see, even just the way you were walking around characterizing that, what is my problem? Then the gospel is a solution to a problem rather than an invitation into a relationship. And, and, and then so we end up, and, and, he, and here's what I really think the long term of that is, is if you go in a Christian bookstore, there are a lot more self-help books than there are devotional books in the most part. And there's a lot more energy spent trying to overcome uh, our problems than there are dive into and embrace our relationship. And that's just a, it's a sort of subjective thing, but it is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm showing my bias now for sure in relationship to that. So uh, what would then, okay, so let's flip the other way. And what would be, if we were working on those first two questions, uh, and do you think it makes sense, or is this just me being idealistic, that if we're going to... Oh, Alan, I'm sorry, buddy. I was looking at the floor, sorry. <laughs> no, that's no problem. It, it was interesting because the, the, when, when I first saw what you, what you put up, it was good. It was a bit like Jen, I was saying. Yeah, what, what, what are you looking at? But then I, I look back over my life. You know, when I was 19, I gave my life to Christ. Why? Because he wanted a relationship with me. Then over the next 30 years, I, I learned about God. And what I learned about is what he is and, and, and what am I. And therefore, that changed, that changed my perspective in some ways, even though there was always, I always had a relationship with God, even from a little boy. Um, and so it was only in 12 years ago when, when um, you know, probably, starting about 20 years ago when I got real with God and but it is it's that relationship it's who I am and who he is and I believe that that's probably the gospel now that I preach is that who they are in Christ it's not I'm not trying to convince them that they need God because they do everyone needs God what I'm trying to convince what 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 my words I'm not even trying to convince them of anything because he's able to do what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to um encourage them in that relationship you know a, a young fellow at work said al if there's something you could give me tell me what would you do what would you say to me i said well you've got to get that going before you get that going because if you don't get that going you won't do that very well other words get your relationship with god right Jesus has already done the done the job, and then that's why the to me the commandments: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbour as yourself. Because unless we do that right, we can never get that right. Yeah, there's an inexhaustible uh, supply of watts too. You know, you can you can fix five watts, and then two more watts come up. That are that are different, and I'm not saying there's not a truth to the you know what are we and what what is God, but it, it just doesn't seem to be the place to start, right? Nor does it seem to be the place that sustains the kind of devotion or the kind of heartfelt connection. Um, anyway, again, I'm just trying to analyze it. We're trying to lay a foundation to see what words might might be. So as you're talking about that vertical relationship, Al, that's going to be a part of a conversation that's more of a who related conversation than a what related conversation uh you know stopping uh smoking and drinking and dating girls that do 
is a what kind of concept. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, it's so easy to focus on that because we're confronted by the what's in our life, good and bad, all the time. Uh, but the who is something that we don't, we don't often see. Is that how it is? Okay. Becky or Dan? Yeah, so that's Dan. I think the who is obviously a relational question, but I think as you plumb the relationship, you can't, you can only go so far without eventually asking the what questions, you know, because that, that characterizes who we are, you know, that, that they, they interrelate to each other. But I think in general, the who is a, a better approach in general. Um, to me, the more interesting questions are your later ones. That's where I think the watershed is can be much more significant as you look at some of those later questions you have. Um, so, the setup that the who question about God and the who question about us uh, serves as, in other words, can it become a, a better foundation to explore the what? Right, because there are people in the world who will respond and are being called to the turn and burn, turn or burn message. Right, I mean that is a legitimate thing. Now, is that usually the best thing that people should say? I think in general modern conversation, that's usually not a good approach. Uh, you know, as as a way to come up and just start talking to somebody and sharing who God is. You know, I think most commonly that's not a good approach, but I wouldn't say it's never an approach, you know, ever. But uh, yeah, I think I think that we generally want to enter the relational aspect of invitation into the relationship of who God is more than the uh, I mean, there's a place probably at the far end that's actually probably wrong, which is when we just start talking about how bad you are and con and very condemning stuff. I think that has no about, you know, there's a point where that's very destructive at some point. I, I, I got an illustration running through my mind, or at least a question for one that relates a little bit to this. And so you feel free, any of you guys to, to respond back to it. But uh, let's say there's an individual who is a judge in a community, a uh, county judge or something like that, criminal judge. And as a judge, he has a reputation. And that reputation can be whatever, you know, deserved or undeserved or whatever accumulates out of his stuff. And so then you take, uh, you take a couple of kids, uh, teenagers, who steal a car and go on a joyride. And when they get caught, the topic turns to this judge. And if one of those kids happens to be the son of that man... <coughs> then that means that the guy's not just a judge, he's also that kid's father. And do you think that the who, as a father, which you could also make that a what, but he's his father, do you think that's going to have a bearing on the expectations and, and the, the possibilities for that son? And I think the answer is yes, it has to have. It has to have. Now, I don't know how you work that out in a legal situation, but I think to start with kind of a, 
uh, a who of God that invites creator, invites judge, invites all that kind of stuff, is going to leave enough, it's going to produce enough opportunity for debate in our hearts and minds and with one another, and from the scripture even, it's going to produce enough opportunity that we might not ever get to sitting there thinking, well, what if he was my father? How would that affect how he thinks about me? Or how would that affect how he thinks about you? Because it may be difficult for us to pull ourselves out of our watts. You know, when we do something stupid, that has a real power to bring shame or a power to bring a definition about us. But is there enough power in, in the watts about God? Like, like I've even heard people talking about, you know, God having mercy or God loving me. And, and it's a dismissive thing about that. Well, yeah, he has to love me because he's God. Well, that's a different thing than realizing he does love you. And that love is what's driving his redemptive motives. It's what drives his choices. And so those are some of the distinctions. Does that make any sense to anybody? Okay. All right. Any other Zoomers? All right, let's go back to Gospel version 1. The red version. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. So, if if God is a what, and we are a what, then God is the sum of what He does, and we are the fruit of or the sum of what we do. So then, that is why I got to this next question. How did or does God respond to what we are? So that was what I would consider the version that I'm moving away from. We're still in this one when we get to the third question down. We're still in the place where we're looking at or trying to think about this and talk about it from God's perspective. So what is my, meaning God's, so, who am I? Who are you? And what is my goal or my hope in redemption? Now, let me go back here. What is the goal or hope behind God's response? The way these questions formed in my mind, God's response came before God's, I mean, God's, uh, yeah, God's response came before the hope in his heart. And one of the characteristics of a gospel that I think we should move away from is believing that what went on with redemption in Jesus and all this stuff is actually a response to the fall. And I know a lot of people that believe and that teach as if the true story of the gospel was that everything was made and they were made kind of perfect. And it proves it because God said they're very good. But then when they fell, this plan B had to be developed. And that the whole thing about Jesus coming and all that was just a prophetic thing initiated when, Jesus, when uh, God told uh, Eve that you know, your seed is, uh, he's gonna, um, the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush his head. And when you just talk about it abstractly like that, it doesn't make that much sense. But when you start thinking that how much of an influence does this order of things, God's response before his heart, how much uh, th does that color what our expectations are 
of a person's first encounter with God. So it's like God is... I have people in my family that use words like God is obligated to punish sin. So he is under an obligation. There's, There's something innate to him or something behind him or above him, which I don't know why they would call him God if that was the case, but there's something that forces God to deal first with the sin issue before he can deal with the love issue. And if we, if we go to the, this order, when we're thinking about the story of redemption, when we're thinking about the story that we're going to try to tell, it's about a God who is something, and it's about us who are something, and it's about a goal that God has in redemption, and it's not until the fourth layer down here that we begin to see the place of what works against the heart of the Father toward His children, or what works against what God's trying to do. That make sense? Okay. And again, this is just my analysis, and I'm trying to lay a foundation so that when, when we start talking about the words we use and the story we're trying to tell, you know, we might have an outline to rewrite that story. It's kind of the idea, and, and kind of why I put the questions in the, in the order. So let's go back and look at this again. So we're, we're, we're looking at this thing from the outside, kind of. What are you and what's God? And, and how did God respond? So here's an example of how that colors biblical interpretation. Um, the idea that God was offended at Adam and Eve at the fall, the idea that he kicked them out of the garden as punishment, the idea that he cursed Eve as punishment, all come, in my understanding, in my mind, they come from thinking of of this, that here was this defining moment. God gave the first law. And that was, of all the trees you may eat, but of this tree don't eat, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they broke that law, and that began to completely define God's relationship with people and what was going to have to happen from there forward. And I, I don't think that's really... An, I mean, way back when, when we first started looking at Genesis to take a, a fresh look at that, we, we start trying to look for the anger of God in that situation. And you couldn't find it. He was there helping him. He was doing all this kind of stuff. And even the dispossession of the garden seemed to be an act of mercy so that they didn't live in this deception and darkness forever. In other words, they weren't leasing life over and over again in the midst of that destruction. So, anyway. Yes, Vicki? So when I was a little girl, um, I went to the store and I stole some Lifesavers. And got home and... um, That's what you were. You were a thief. uh, Yeah, I got home. And what my mother said to me was, you're taking those back, you're going to apologize, and you're going to pay for them because I'm not raising you to be a thief. Okay. And, and I remember thinking, oh, I'm a thief, right? Except I wasn't a thief, and that isn't what my mother was saying. My mother was saying, you're not a thief. Yeah. So therefore, because you're not a thief, this is, this is what we have to do so you know that you're not a thief. And I feel like the what are you um, concept of like, you know, uh, we can label ourselves anything. We can, we can take anything in our lives and make it be a sin. 
And so a sinner saved by grace is sort of a nebulous thing. But if we break it down and we say, you know, I'm an adulterer saved by grace. Well, that may be true. You might have committed adultery, but then you stopped committing adultery. So are you an adulterer? You know? Um, so it to me, I think the what are you, what is God, takes away the ability or even the how did or does God respond to you and, and who you think you are, takes away the ability for us to have a genuine um, dialogue or conversation about who or what we are and who or what God is. Because labels really are just not <laughs> from God. And I think when we label ourselves or, you know, a, a, an adult figure or a, uh, somebody in authority over us labels us, we can really embrace that and miss out really on who God is saying we are. And so, you know, I think the, I don't know, for me, the the who questions are really important. And I'll tell you what, when I got saved, I was told, think of every sin in your life and confess it before God once you, you know, once you can God never brought up the lifesavers, not once in my life, never. Yeah. So so would you guys agree that by definition, a label is designed to contain and, and sort of minimize the definition of something? Even if it's a positive label. In other words, why do you put a label on a box? So that you have a limited and focused knowledge of what's in it. Could a label be amazing? Someone says, you're amazing. It could. And so I see that as positive. It could be. And Okay. <laughs> I see it as positive. And then so when I'm thinking about I'm uh, an, a questioner, I'm an amazing questioner, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So when it becomes a problem, and a positive thing becomes a problem, is if it forces you to perform. I have to be amazing when I ask a question. I have to be the best creator painter ever. And so we can always go that step farther. Mm -hmm. So I would agree with you. Labels are probably not that good for us because we tend to take them to the next step, which is, I've got to be this amazing questioner. I've got to be this amazing cook. I've got to be this amazing wife, husband, son, daughter. Well, so here's something uh, before you make this comment, right? Here, uh, it seems to me, and I, I'd reflect back on what Dan said, we're going to get to some watts. I'm not saying that there's not going to be any watts in our, in our uh, language, you know? Being a son is a watt. Being uh, called and, and being a worshiper is a watt. But... Those things may need a deeper context of a who is what I'm thinking before they really have. So, go ahead. I'm not so sure I'm ready to dismiss labels. I understand what you're saying, Vicki. I believe God refers to us as the apple of his eye. That's a label. I believe God refers to himself as the various names he has. El Shaddai, Jehovah Rophe, God who heals. To me, those are labels. Mm -hmm. They're descriptors 
and I don't know that they just define only they're only they're only there to box you into that one thing. I think it's a descriptor of you. Well, they do draw your attention to that one thing at the very least, though. Yeah, I mean, but for some reason he uses them for yeah. himself, okay. and so good. because of that, I don't know that it's a good idea to just say. Well, not. I, I don't, don't think we're them. saying that we can't use them. I, I, that that oh. for them to have for them to have their effect, they need to have a context. Sure. Dave. Labels for me objectify anything I'm labeling. When my daddy, okay, so I guess it's, I could be labeled as a son of God, but he doesn't see me like that. He didn't see me as a label. And mom, my mom, I'll talk about my mom again. That's a label, but <laughs> I would never say I labeled her as mom. That's her, I, that's who she is. A relational expression. And, and it, it relates yeah. to how I relate to her and how she related to me. And so when I think of daddy, okay, so God is a label. El Shaddai is a label. I don't even go there. Yeah. Because that's, that, 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 that's not who he is to me. He's, he's daddy. Not to me. I mean, maybe to you, but that... So is every noun a label? Yeah, that, that because like you said, it pigeonholes me. It, it, I just can't think of somebody I love as a label. Okay. Well, this is good. I mean, we're working, working words. Greg, what do you got? Um... You actually blessed me one time. It was some kind of Facebook post, and I don't remember the specifics. I had posted something about Abby. And uh, you said these words. Good job, Dad. I think we're getting lost on the word labels. Anytime someone gives a word, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God looks on the outward appearance, but a man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It was the biggest blessing to hear that because I'm scared to death without a mommy at home that I'm I'm not that good of a dad. To hear you say that was a giant blessing. Oh my goodness, Larry just called me a good dad. I mean, I I was it was like someone handed me a trophy or something. And um, in the context of how we introduced this topic about the lot, we call them the lost. All week long, I felt like God says you really should have trouble calling them the lost. Um, all week long, I don't know why God's been talking to me about stop calling them the lost. Jesus called them the lost once, but he was saying, I came to seek and to save that was lost. And he said, why don't you call them the sought, since that's what I said I'm doing with them. I'm not dismissing them and they're lost. They're lost and I'm seeking them. Um, and then I went through the Bible to look for verses on evangelism. And I found out I have grown up with the wrongest possible idea. Of evangelism. Romans 2 4 says, Do you not understand that the loving kindness of God first leads man to repentance? Second, traditional religion has man, you got to repent in order to experience the loving kindness of God. That is not what the word says. The word says the loving kindness of God first. The two people I've led to the Lord in the last year, it was so obvious God was working on them. And I always say it reverently. 
I didn't lead them to the Lord. The Lord led them to me. God was already working on them. They're, they were not lost. They were sought. And then both the, the and uh, again, Romans 10, 20, it quotes a verse out of Isaiah. It says, I was found by a people who were not looking for me. God is working on people and God has been telling me, stop calling them the lost. It's, it's a fait accompli. It's not the right word. I'm with them. I'm working on them. Just like you said about the camp out in Utah, there's all these homeless people. And obviously, since they're homeless, they must be lost. And you find out God's with these people. Um, so I, God's been really walking me through. They're not lost. I said I came to seek and to save the lost. I've already come. Therefore, they're sought. And I am working on them. Example, I, I totally agree with you, Ronnie, that words are words. And, and we're, all words are placeholders for something. And some words are placeholders for relationships. Some words are placeholders for dismissiveness. Some words are placeholders for inclusiveness and all that. So, yeah, I, I don't want to get too anal about dismissing anything that might seem like a label. That's a good point. But that's a beautiful idea of what is the essence of what Jesus came for? Was he coming because of the lostness or was becoming because of the heart to seek? And can we legitimately emphasize one over the other uh, and, and then what governs what we emphasize like for instance seeing jesus as a seeker and then i could think running back to uh john 5 where they said what do we have to do to work the works of god and in relationship greg to what you just said well this is the work of him that you would believe into the one he sent so now god is a sender that could be a label too it, you know it, it it functions as a label Perhaps not, perhaps not. Perhaps not. But anyhow, you know, that, that, uh, that is just a, a classic thing to keep in mind. So remember what Greg said, that we have a scripture there that gives us a chance to emphasize two different concepts, that people are sought or that people are lost. It's great, it's great. That, that's going to play into our vocabulary, Greg. That's a great observation. Hi. I mean, that was so beautiful. I hate to go backwards, but what was in my head from the from the who and the what as far as who are you, what are you? I mean, obviously, if you say, oh, what are you? Then I start thinking about my function in society and this is what I do and this is whatever. I do this, I do this, I do that. And we think about the what we do's. But who, whenever we keep saying a son, it would be a, a what to me that I couldn't reconcile it. And I think part of it is like, like we're all, we're all daughters or sons. Like everyone was born of someone. So everyone is a child. But that doesn't really, if somebody says, what are you, then I would never say, oh, I'm a child or, oh, I was a child. I mean, I, I mean, kind of, but, but like I was just thinking of the difference. It's all about who we're relating to. So even in my childness, even in my daughterness, I am a daughter of who, like there's a, there's a who element there that, that if you don't know. So if you go to my small town and, and they say, oh, who are you? Um, I would say I'm John Nichols' daughter because they, that, that I wouldn't say I am a daughter like I mean, does that make sense? Like, it yeah, be, it's, yeah. it's who's, and so so. In I, other words, I'm that God's who daughter. has a built-in relationship in it. Exactly, and so I would say whose daughter, and they would say, and then they they have a picture of who I am because of who they know I came from, and so the same with the, with our with God the Father, that because we're His, we have an identity through us as we relate, but that identity only comes as we know who the who is, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So so the what to me can get really messy, um, because it can we can get stuck on just our one little function. 
adoption versus the relational piece of it. And then I was also thinking about because I because my stepmother has Alzheimer's. And whenever I'm there, I'm constantly telling her, she'll say, well, um, who's, who's, where are you sleeping? And, I, you know, whatever, or she'll ask whatever question about what's happening. And I'll say, I am because I'm your daughter. I say that constantly the whole time there. Well, I am because I'm your daughter. When Ezekiel goes, it freaks her out because there's this full grown person there she doesn't recognize because she only knew him as a child that she remembers. But then I, I always say, or she'll say, who just went back there? Ezekiel, my son, he went back there. And then that the, because of that relationship, there's like, but it's all about who that, if, if it was just, you know, if, you, if, you, if Ronnie came or whatever to their house and stopped by and I said, oh, he's a son, it would be like, well, who cares if he's a son? But because he's my son, there's a relational aspect in that who makes a really big difference in, in how she perceives things. And so I, I, I do like the idea that th there are certain interactions where truly who you are, an identity that preceded you and goes beyond you is revealed by I'm John Nichols' daughter. Right. Yeah, that, that's pretty specific. And the who I think always has to be. Like, yeah. I think the who always has to be there with any of our roles. Like, even if you say, where, oh, what do you do? I'm a nonprofit manager. Well, who do you work for? Well, that, like, my answer tells a lot about me. Because if I said something super, you know, whatever that you're totally against, well, then you're going to say, oh, now I know your character because of who you're with. And yeah. so the and who, it could, no it could be a false judgment, role, but nevertheless, it right, still that does have that. assumption is there. So that what yeah. role, I think, always diverts to a who in some way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, like, reflecting back, Dave, on what, you know, one of your, your ways of communicating, I'm daddy's son. I'm daddy's boy, you know. I'm daddy's kid. That, that, uh, that speaks of a larger context. And so, in a sense, even though all, it could also be a label, it doesn't seem like it's that restrictive label. And label, yeah. I got you. I got you. Alan? This is really good conversation because often we get the, the what and the who and we sort of intermingle them. But um, God was just saying to me, you know, it's whatever's good, whatever's lovely. Meditate on that stuff, as he says in Philippians. And I think, I think you know, what, what Vicky said was true, but that we often, we don't meditate on the good stuff. And, and I love what Greg said. Look, brother that's spot on because because you know we, we we used to have these people these churches who said oh we led so many people to the lord no god brought them to you to get that next step that's all it is it's not don't look at yourself more highly than you ought so it but it's an honor and a privilege to be a part of their journey and i think that's what we what we forget or what we have forgotten in the past is that you know I don't, I'm, I'm Alan Powell, I'm fifth son. You've got know what I mean? I'm son of God. Um, I'm, I'm, I live in Dubbo, if you get what I mean. Like you know, everything about me is, is tells me something about me, like it, whatever I say. And, and when I started, just comes to mind, when I started teaching 34 years ago, I was teaching in Sydney and I introduced myself as, um, you know, my name's Alan Powell and I come from Dubbo and, and the students just, no one comes from Dubbo out because Dubbo was seen as a 2830, other words, that's our postcode, as a simpleton and because of the troubles we'd had in, in the city. And so therefore, no one could be a simpleton and be a teacher and come from that. So there's that label. There are labels and we, we are so quick to label. And I, I think that's probably the biggest thing is that, yeah, 
whatever's good, whatever's lovely, meditate on that spot. So the contrast that Greg put up there with that, are you a sought one? Or are you a lost one? If you, okay, so the context a little bit in my mind of Jen's question on, on how do we share is, I, I, I don't know if you added it or I added it, but, you know, we're going to go be visiting family and there's going to be people who don't know the Lord and all this kind of stuff. How do we talk about them? I don't know that this or the next two or three meetings is going to solve that issue. I hope it's going to make some progress, but I know this for sure. I would rather talk to one of my family members in such a way that they w walked away thinking, wow, I'm a sought one rather than I'm a lost one. And, and it goes back to the first comment you made that the old form of evangelism, that's the big thing we got to help people know. You need to know you're lost. What I find as I'm living to be older is most people do know that. They know their life is a mess. Most of them do. And they cover it up. And they think that Success is ultimately covering it up. Uh, but but if, they, if they thought, you know, like I loved what Vicky said, the way her mom framed that had just enough of, this is not who you are. This is not who I'm raising you to be. That, that it kept her separate from that identification. The contrast to that is the, and I might be oversimplifying this, but the master's plan of evangelism. Have you ever told a lie? Then you're a liar. <laughs> Have you ever stolen a piece of candy? Vicky would have to say yes. Then you're a thief. You know, so maybe the word, Ronnie, that we're going to get to that'll, that'll help distinguish between labels that hurt and labels that help are, are like relational labels or identity labels or something like that. We'll see how it goes. I mean, we're building a vocabulary. Yeah. Dave. I want to share a, I had a conversation with Richard Alliston uh, for two hours. He, we went to Fort Collins together and he shared an experience with me. And then the way he, the way he talks about daddy and he would never tell you this, but it was an, it was a, it just came out in a conversation and it was just really precious. So he had a Viper, a Dodge Viper. Oh my gosh. Yes. And you guys know what a Dodge Viper is? Yeah, okay. Oh, my. It's, it's a wonderful car. I had one. I didn't like it. I gave it away. <laughs> no, I didn't. And so, uh, You're a liar. Did you ever tell a lie, Larry? You're a liar. <laughs> Go ahead. So, so Daddy told him to, to get rid of it. He'd had it for a while, so Daddy told him to get rid of it. So he got a friend of his who needed a car. He went to a car dealership, and he said, I want $7,000 for this car, and I want you to give him a car up to $10,000. That's worth up to $10,000. And then he looked at the guy and he said, if you thank me, then you need to go home. But if you thank daddy, then you need to accept this car. And his, his, his perspective on it, it was, it was always about daddy. It was always about, and I'm, I'm doing this because he always wanted daddy to be seen. He always wanted daddy to be, he was almost trying to protect daddy. Not to make him look good, but to make sure all of the glory went to him and nothing bad could ever be said about him. To protect his reputation protect or something? To protect his reputation. Yeah. Like I would protect my mom and I would protect my siblings. So one of the, the unfortunate byproducts of the gospel, the way it was mostly taught to me, was uh, God was portrayed more like Judge Roy Bean 
the hanging judge than, than any other kind of characterization. And so, uh, Dan or Becky? Contrasting again, a lot of the older ways are actually it's still quite common is there's so much of an emphasis on you have to recognize how bad you are, how in need of conversion you are, how wretched you are, how distant you are and everything. It's like you can't come to God until you realize how far you are from God. So it's kind of that, and that goes in, I think Vic, you talked about that a bit about, you know, you have to confess all these things and say how bad you were and admit all these things about you. Whereas God's saying, I'm looking for you. I'm, I'm here. I'm right with you. What, let's start walking together. Can you? All right, let me ask you a question, Dan, and the rest of you guys too. Uh, do you think that there are a number of people at any given point in time in the world and maybe in our lives, crossing our paths, that aren't really so trapped by their horrific addictions or their horrific perversities, but they are like uh, like a child who doesn't know they belong. You know, in other words, their life is not best characterized by atrocities that they commit but it's more characterized by uh, a vulnerable and a fearful personality because they don't feel like they're connected. I think there's a lot of people like that. And so, yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, and, and again, I think you pointed out earlier, Dan, there's going to be some people that are going to benefit from being confronted with the atrocities in their life. But in years of pastoring... There's a tie between a couple of theologies here. Like the one is that whole you gotta admit how bad you are. And I think it's I think there's a latent idea there of if I don't talk about how bad I was and how horrid it was, then somehow I'm doing dishonor to the work of Christ and how significant his work was, you know, of defending me and having to uh, you know, the whole penal substitutionary atonement thing. So I think those two kind of are married at some level where somehow to not admit you're so wretched is to say that Jesus' work was not, you know, amazing. Yeah, it wasn't important, you know, and it's that's just not the case. To me, it ties into the concept of transaction. So if we're wanting someone to know how wretched they are so that the transaction has real meaning rather than just, all right, I'll pray something, whatever. Because that meant something to us that it mattered if you say these words and you really mean it. Then the transaction's complete. Mm -hmm. If you just say them because you're trying to get me out of here and or, you just want to move on. Or you just sort of slide into a relationship. Yeah, then it's kind of like you're before. not really there. Yeah, um, yeah. And that all ties to the concept of it being a moment in time, a single transaction, and that's what matters. Now, that is one of the other fruits of Gospel Version 1, is there's a huge emphasis on a point of demarcation, when that happened. Really a huge emphasis. Yeah, you got to know it or you don't know so it. So when Version 2 is focused on relationship, 
that's like the beginning of a journey mm -hmm. to understand my relationship and how that interacts with everything from here on rather than it's got to happen and it's got to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So I think the concern that I was taught of make sure they know they're lost before they can get found, yeah. make sure they're a sinner before they know they need a savior, those kind of things all were tied specifically to get a decision and get a transaction to happen. And that ties into whether Jesus, what it, what he did was worth it or not. Yeah. All that stuff is that transactional thing, which you've done, I think, a fabulous job of helping me understand that that's not, not really the not primary useful. point. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't really have the words for this yet, but I got a picture forming in my mind of having language that can talk about the gospel and about the gift of life from God that would as easily embrace a little four-year-old that got separated from his parents at a fair and one of the security people at the fair noticed it and remembered seeing him with his parents earlier. And so he comes up and he kneels down and he's gentle with this little guy and he picks him up, gets him on his shoulder and he said, let's go look for your mom and dad. And he, he reunites them. That needs to have value as much as one of those crisis moments where the guy is, you know, in the corner of an alley, crying his head out, getting ready to blow his brains out, and somebody intercedes in that too. Jesus is seeking both those, I think. But it's like that one doesn't have the value because it doesn't have that drama associated with it, perhaps. Greg? Um, you, you mentioned the word contrast, and what immediately came to mind was uh, I, was a, I was a Bible major at a Baptist University. One of the things that was taught, I'll never forget it, it was a, it came from a, an evangelical track. I'm not exaggerating. And the title of the track was Frown, God May Hate You. There was a, it was taught in a college session as a Bible major, and, it, and the professor quoted an uh, evangelical track. It was an evangelistic track. The purpose was evangelism. And this track's title was Frown, God May Hate You. And that when you talk about the version one, or you mentioned the contrast, a lot of times people got their dukes up because they've got a, a, a history of a denomination condemning them. It's not the gospel and it's not the good news. And it doesn't talk about the loving kindness first and then repentance later. You're just hated by God. And I'm, it's been a complete conversion to me to actually go read these verses. And in the sequence, it talks about love, then repentance, and God is seeking someone not looking for him. Uh, but when you mention the contrast, one of the things that I think has hurt a lot of people is uh, what some more religious groups have done with evangelism. Um, and it can be harder to lead them to the Lord because they heard. God hates them. And it's very sad. Uh, I'd be mean about this, but this is not just a fringe group. It's not just like Westboro Baptist Church or something like this. If you go and, and uh, mainline people like R.C. Sproul, you know, he's got this famous uh, lecture that he gave when and he, in a question and answer time. Some of the students said, is it appropriate to stand in front of a group of people that you don't know and say God loves you? And he said, no. No, it's not. Because the fact is, God, 
probably hates most of them because God hates sinners. Now, this is a mainline evangelical Western theologian who's a good guy. I mean, he's not a bad guy. I've listened to him preach, and, and, but this is the thinking that puts that on the cover of an evangelistic yeah, track for sure, for sure. Richard. I think the, the language that we use is adjusted according to where someone is at. At Burning Man, where people have no idea about God or they didn't have, they were raised, it was so much easier to bring them into an experience and say, you just experienced God and their eyes light up. Mm -hmm. Where someone that's been churched and they think that God is off someplace, yet when you're in a conversation with them, you can hear God moving in their life. And you point that out. Well, that, that was God. What do you mean that was God? Well, you didn't recognize that this was God using whatever it was to bring about whatever mm -hmm. it is. And so anyway, I, it's just a, a language that we need to... Uh, I mean, once you realize... Once you get away from the old paradigm of, of evangelism and come into a place of knowing where the, that it's all relationship, now you're working on a relationship uh, language with another individual mm -hmm. in where they're at. Yeah, and, and, and if the, one of the things we're going to have to settle our hearts on is if the relational... Okay, so for relational language to be legitimate the relational reality has to be behind it. And I know one of the things that I've uh, had some fun talking about and a lot of good debates, and these are really quality people that, were, that have this debate. So are we children of God or not? Is that person out there, whether it's the person at Burning Man or the person that no, are we children of God? Now, I am 100% convinced that by definition from God's perspective, which is why who is God and who are you is more important as an early question than the details. Because if God conceives of himself as our Father, and, and if that, then you read a verse like out of Ephesians where it says that, uh, you know, uh, God and Father who through every family in heaven derives its name, well, there's a certain significance there that you don't read if God's not your Father until you make a transactional choice and become a son. And I know that these are not super easy things to do because Romans, I mean, not Romans, so John 1, 12 says that as many as receive him, I gave you the power to become children of God. You know, my, that's why I've spent a lot of time on what that structure means and, and so on and so forth. But uh, the relational aspect, if it's real, we need to find a language for. So what I want to do now is kind of semi start to wrap up. See if my stuff's on here. Yep. All right, so based on, if you need me to flash back there on the other uh, slides, I will. Can somebody characterize some language guidance or language context? Because remember, that's what we're trying to do is figure out how to say this. So, uh, huh? The word sought. Sought, okay. Yeah, so this is... Uh, we have a choice. Do we have a choice on what to emphasize? Like in that verse that Greg brought out, 
He came to seek and save that which was lost. Do we have the, the right to emphasize sought? Okay. Um, story words. Um, we can emphasize um, different words. Sought versus lost. That doesn't mean we have to deny that people are lost. It just means we can bring into the language that they're sought. Uh, Ezekiel, on your comment, a thought that I had was personal versus general. Does, Does that make sense that we have an opportunity? It's legit. I mean, is God personal? Yes. Is God also a big transcendent source of being and creator? Yeah, he is. So another... Uh, so, personal words versus uh, what, what would be general, abstract, generic, impersonal. Uh, yeah, what's the what's the opposite of per- personal? Abstract. Okay. That was yeah. That was your thought. So let's put that in. All right, uh, so another thing is we can uh, speak that's not how you spell speak, is it? Okay, sorry. We can speak Holly, how would you describe the idea of Identity relationship speaking. In other words, you're not just a daughter, you're John Nichols' daughter. A relate? Or specifics. Now, the problem with this is there are a lot of believers that don't believe that we're children of God until we say the prayer. So we have to settle our theology about that. We have to find out what we think that Scripture actually says about that. But, but once we do cross into that territory, like I have crossed into that territory, I now feel more than just the, the possibility, I feel an obligation to articulate the gospel in such a way that somebody knows. So, for instance, the little illustration I had in my mind of the kid that gets separated, the four or five-year-old that gets separated, six-year-old, seven-year-old, whatever, gets separated from his his mom and dad at the fair. And that security guard, he has an assurance that that kid belongs to a parent. He has an assurance of that. He can treat that child not as an orphan. Because just because there's this this separation in in the bustle of the crowd, that doesn't turn that child into an orphan all of a sudden, right? And I would say that the, the presumption should be relationship. And, and that somehow our language needs to presume childness, and it needs to presume sonship. It needs to presume a relational, a daddy relationship. Yes? Yeah, another difference there would be we can speak destiny or we can speak history. I mean, destiny. That's a great contrast. 
What's more real about a person? Yes, where they're going as opposed to where they came from. Yeah. See, here's like, okay, so here's a, here's a little biblical example, I think, that, de- that, that defends, what, defends what Dan says. Paul, when Paul was describing his conversion on Damascus Road in Galatians chapter 1, it says, when it pleased God, who called me from my mother's womb. That means that Paul was in a state of reality defined by being called from his mother's womb and separated from his mother's womb to declare the gospel while he was persecuting the church as Saul the Pharisee. So which was more, ultimately more important in his life? The destiny or the history? That's a really good one. That's, and we might have to work on that some and look for some more scripture to find that, but I like it, Dan. Uh, we can give weight. Oops, got a little tight there. To destiny over history. Like, what do you think Nebuchadnezzar is going to be known by in heaven? All that history of brutality and demonic leadership or the repentance and the declaration of the glory of God? I can't wait to talk to the guy. I really do. I can't wait to talk. And what if everybody, what if everybody is defined by that transition in their life from a heavenly perspective? And is that what it means when it says that... Uh, uh, Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. He doesn't look anybody that way. Okay, any other thoughts that we can take away? This will capture that. I'll save it on the PowerPoint. Oh, relational presumption, okay. Yeah, I appreciate bringing it back up. That's a big deal to me. How I approach a person and what I assume is their identity slash destiny is a big deal. Tim? Yeah, I... You know, just sitting here listening, like, it really threw me when you talk about the one guy, when he, he said, can I say to a general audience, God loves you, you know, and he said, no, <laughs> that there actually would be people out there that God didn't love, that he hates, you know, and, and I look at this as kind of like, I, I'm trying to simplify it, I, I use the KISS method, you know, keep it, keep it simple, son, uh, that basically is that you just have to believe and receive Jesus loves you. Yeah. It's that simple. And you can yeah. use scripture to back that up yeah. and show that individual. But we complicate things so much. And I just like to keep it simple and express how much he really loves them. We'll presume Father's love. Now, I don't know exactly how we're going to translate these little ideas into a vocabulary list and then vocabulary list into dialogue and all that kind of stuff. But thank you guys for the thoughts. Zoomers, thanks for the great contributions.